The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. I'm so glad that you could join us and so glad that we're going to be covering a topic we have never covered. We've talked about the green economy and green jobs from just about every vantage point that you can except for one critical piece, and that is from the worker standpoint, from a labor union standpoint. You know, not all green jobs are necessarily good jobs, and there's an organization out there that is making sure that green jobs are good jobs, that they're good paying, that they're safe, that they're family sustaining in terms of wages and benefits, and that's the AFL-CIO. And today we're joined by Bob Bao, and he is the executive director for the Working for America Institute, which is part of AFL-CIO's um, benefits to its members. It's an organization within AFL-CIO, and he has done an incredible amount of work over the last few years um, to, to deal with this very important issue. Are green jobs good jobs, and how can we make sure that they are? Um, so welcome to Go Green Radio, Bob. I'm so glad that you could join us. I'm glad to be here, Jill. Well... Before we dive into the specifics of this topic, I'd like to give you a moment to explain to our listeners what AFL-CIO is, because not everyone is familiar with the role of labor unions, and then give us some background on your specific work with AFL-CIO. Sure, sure. Uh, a couple things. Well, the AFL-CIO is, is an acronym. It stands for the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And in essence, we are a confederation or a coalition of all of the many of the major unions in the United States. And these range from public workers like teachers and the Federation of State County Municipal Employees to industrial workers. I actually am also the executive director of the Industrial Union Council, and these are the manufacturing workers, which are like the auto workers and the steel workers and the machinists. Um, and we also cover service workers, the hotel and restaurant workers, and, and other things. So it's a large confederation made up of the, up the different unions in different sectors of the economy in the United States. Um, part of my work, uh, both with the council and the institute you identified, uh, it also involves uh, my job as chair of the AFL-CIO Energy Task Force. I'm actually uh, the climate guy, in a way, for the federation, and we see all these policies around what do we do about climate and carbon emissions, how do we do this in a way that is, makes sense both from an economic development and an environmental perspective for the nation. How can we make green jobs good jobs, as you said? Well, that's uh, pretty exciting work. And, and honestly, I have to say until recently, I didn't realize how involved – 
AFL-CIO and other labor unions were in those discussions, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But first, let's back up to kind of a rudimentary understanding of what a green job is. You hear a lot of different definitions. Some of them, I think, are purposefully vague. Um, but I'd like for you to talk about how labor identifies and defines what a green job is. Uh, I, th- I think we've taken a fairly broad perspective, and it's actually one we've communicated with the Department of Labor. We were part of a study team and a big task force that were looking at green jobs in the economy. And over and over, we would say that green jobs really are about people that have actually good jobs and jobs that are doing something to lower our carbon emissions, to lower the carbon footprint. Um, I think there's a big mistake that's made often uh, in the, with my friends in the environmental community, and not necessarily deliberately, but it happens, that every time somebody talks about a green job, you all of a sudden have this image pop into your head of a wind turbine or a solar, solar panel mm-hmm. and the people who install them or the people you know who make them. Um, and while those are green jobs, it really cuts short all the other people that make efficient windows, right, or make insulation to make energy-efficient buildings, or the people who retrofit an industrial facility so that it's industrial energy efficiency and doing combined heat and power. Uh, doing that and doing that facility, those are green jobs. They're lowering our carbon footprint. They're making us more energy efficient. So we tend to have a, a much broader definition because we think it's actually uh, both accurate and inclusive so that mm-hmm. people see themselves. They don't get an image that says, that's somebody else's job. I'm somehow disconnected from it. I like that. I, I like that approach, and I think you're very right. I think that is an accurate, a much more accurate definition. Though it's broad, it's really not vague. I mean, it's, you know, anyone who can say, I'm doing something to lower our carbon footprint, lower our carbon em- emissions, can say, I'm part of this green job movement, and I think that's great. You know, I recently heard an AFL-CIO representative speak at the California Resource Recovery Association convention. Now, the CRRA is basically the largest um, waste reduction and recycling organization in the state of California. And they are comprised of waste haulers, professional recyclers, zero waste advocates, just a, a lot of different stakeholder groups. And this particular labor representative was on a panel of recycling experts, and all the other people talking about it were um, focused on things like various types of recyclable materials and some successful recycling programs in a number of cities in California. But when the labor representative spoke, he gave some information on wages and safety conditions that really got my attention, and actually that's why I invited you to come on the show today. He said that in many cases, wages for workers in recycling jobs are much lower than wages for traditional waste hauling jobs. And there were a number of reasons he gave for that, but I I never realized that, and it, it troubled me. So I'd like for you to talk about these types of issues in, in a little bit more detail and help us understand the labor perspective and labor concerns about some of these newly created, quote-unquote, green jobs. Well, I, I think there's you know, sort of, I think you caught it right. People get up caught up in the excitement of doing recycling and doing these good things, which we like too. Uh, don't don't get me wrong here, but what we want to keep focused on too is that we should be doing these things, and the jobs that we're creating, we believe, should be good jobs in this economy. That it really, really matters that we both recycle and, in fact, 
do it in a way that people can earn a decent living. They can earn a living wage, that they can get some decent benefits, that they can become part of a society um, in which there's opportunity. Um, we have we have a lot of bad jobs in this economy, and we're creating way too many of them. And I think the question we're raising is not just about green jobs, but broadly across the economy, about how do we make bad jobs better? Um, you know, unions came into being uh, in manufacturing, in particular in the in the 20s and 30s, to make bad jobs better, to make them safer, to make them a healthier workplace, to have a cleaner environment around the work the, the workplace and the community in which that firm exists, so that people could earn a middle class income. In fact, that's how the middle class was created in this country. And I think we look at jobs that are created in our in our service economy, in this, quote, new green economy, the same way. We want to make sure they're good jobs, that those workers have the right to actually organize and bargain collectively and raise their wages and benefits, um, and that those jobs offer a, 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 a step on a ladder of opportunity in our society. We think that makes sense. We think an environmental economic development strategy for the country is exactly what this is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, I I wonder how we can communicate these things. You know, a lot of uh, city councils and uh, county board of supervisors and elected officials, you know, are under a lot of pressure from uh citizens from environmental groups to, you know, get recycling going, to, you know, get green energy going. And everybody's on a tight budget right now. That's no uh, that's no mystery. Um, the the economy's tough right now, and so how do we how do we take uh, you know this situation where we really want to rapidly decrease our carbon emissions and make it something that our communities can afford to do while still ensuring that the workers who are doing that work can support their families? H- how do we balance that? Well, I think there's a couple of ways. I mean, you start from the premise, I believe, that if you're doing something that's making public investments to do this, you have the right to talk about the standards um, uh, under which those investments are made. Uh, that is what has happened in other states and in other communities. I mean, you know, in, in another uh, 20, 25 years ago, I was helping run an economic development agency in the state of Oregon, right? And we actually had, just generically, we had to impose standards for ourselves about the public investments we make. We had to think about that. You know, if we're going to make a public investment, what is the appropriate return to our community, to our government, by making that investment? I, in other words, what is the quality of the jobs we're going to produce? Will they earn enough so those people can be productive, tax-paying members of our society? Will they provide benefits so that their families are protected? They have some in health insurance, those kinds of things. So it's not beyond the pale to suggest that there are ways to look at uh, how public investments and encouragements are made in this that also speak to the idea of we really want some standards. Not do we, not only do we want an environmental standard in our community, we actually want an economic standard around the jobs we're creating to meet that environmental standard. So people do do that. P- communities do do that. States do do that. We'd like to raise the consciousness around this um, so that they're more thoughtful when they go ahead and do that. I'd like for you to talk about the relationship between labor and environmental activist groups because obviously there are going to be some places where you agree and some places where there's still some conflicts and challenges. Talk about how you work with these environmental groups who are pushing, you know, to to get as much 
you know, green going as possible and maybe not considering all the labor implications? Well, actually, I think the truth of the matter is that over the last six or eight years, um, we actually worked fairly well with the environmental community. I mean, there's, there are major coalitions that, that came up in the last decade, the Apollo Alliance and the Blue-Green Alliance, and uh, I was part of the people who helped do the Apollo Alliance originally. Um, we supported that. Our Industrial Union Council supported it. There are a m- number of our major unions that are all part of the Blue-Green Alliance. So there's an ongoing dialogue and relationship, and uh in the struggles in Congress around passing climate legislation over the, you know, the previous years, um, we actually met and talked on a regular basis. And yeah, we had things we couldn't agree upon. But you know what? We actually agreed that we needed legislation. And what was interesting to me is, is that when we came down from perspective of the need that this is really a problem, climate is an issue, the science says so, and we need to do something about it, we all agreed on that. When we said we should do something about it and look at cap and trade and, and, and these, these programs and other ways of uh, putting some standards in place, putting some le- uh, legislation in place that would help us get from here to there. One of the big pieces of that was you need to have a steady stream of investment to make the transition in our energy sector. And we agreed upon this. And, in fact, the environmental community, I think, learned a lot from us about jobs and about mm-hmm. this discussion about creating good jobs and making those investments. So we actually had quite a dialogue. That's not to say we don't have individual things issues that come up where we're in disagreement. But but I even look at, at the state of California in the previous election two years ago, right? And there was mm-hmm. a huge effort to overturn their climate work, the laws. Right. The environmental community, the labor community, community organizations all banded together because they said no. This is what we want to do, and this is where we want to go. So there's a fair amount. We have our differences, but there's a, there's a fair amount of dialogue on all kinds of fronts to do things together because we actually do want a cleaner planet and good jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's great to know that it's possible to disagree and still continue the dialogue. And I think a lot of people could learn a lesson from that. I mean, we, we need to expand on that um, that philosophy a lot more in this country and figure out where we have common ground and, and stand on that together and then work on our differences in a civil way. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. So don't go away. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are joined today by Bob Fowle. Uh, he's the director of the AFL-CIO Working for America Institute and a whole bunch of other things. He wears a lot of hats, and he's been very instrumental, very involved in an effort that I was surprised to learn about, honestly, um, with all of the talk that we've had about transitioning to a green economy on Go Green Radio. I was very surprised to learn just how deeply involved labor and big labor is in these issues and ensuring that green jobs are actually good jobs. And we're really excited to have him on. Bob, before the break, we were talking about um, your relationship with environmental groups. You know, I mean, there are some things that AFL-CIO clearly stands for because it would be good for your union workers, like uh, building new nuclear power plants. That would put a lot of people to work. Um, I know that AFL-CIO hasn't taken a position necessarily on the Keystone XL pipeline because even your internal unions have not agreed on whether or not that's a good idea, but it certainly would put a lot of your members to work. So how do you deal with these types of issues where clearly you're going to butt heads with some of the uh, environmental activist groups that are so influential in climate legislation. Well, I, I think this is. I, I think we point out to you know what is the shortcoming, what's the problem in the country that uh, with not having passed climate legislation, as I was saying before, we, we actually had sort of wider areas of agreement of what ought to be done, and that investment in good jobs was really part of this to transition our economy, and we didn't get it. We didn't get the job done. And it was predictable uh, that what has played out over the last couple of years was going to happen. We end up with regulation with no investment, um, as EPA had to and must move ahead on the regulatory regimes around clean around the Clean Air Act. Um, mm-hmm. You know uh, that, and we said, I said to folks at the time, you know, it's pretty clear where we had this broad swath of agreement of an investment path forward to to achieve 
you know, meeting climate change goals and standards. Um, without that, we will now be divided by single issues that come up, and that's exactly what has gone on. And I think, you know, what we continue to try to do is to find out where are there things, big things that are really important that make a big difference where people can agree. Um, you know, and the fights are still going to take place on these uh, individual issues where people don't agree, but I, I, I still think it is in all our interest to find the places where we can continue to move forward. As mm-hmm. I cited as an example, the folks in California all came together to say, no, we don't want to get rid of our uh, environmental legislation a couple of years ago, and then they continue to work on those things there. People came together uh, in the transportation sector, uh, and the UAW was deeply involved with their industry and the, and the White House and the EPA around fuel efficiency standards and and really is going to set a world mark on what we want to do in the next, you know, over the course of the next decade or so. Very important steps forward that make a big difference. We're working with the entire energy efficiency and environmental community and uh, and industry in looking at regulations around uh, the the boilers, industrial boilers in the country. And what do we do to, with the financial community to really do industrial energy efficiency in a big way? You know, when 20% of 8% of your energy is sort of in utilities and industrial boilers, you want to you want to look at that and say, are there ways we can do that make this much cleaner and more efficient? And there are. So mm-hmm. that's that's some of the ways we, we, we continue to find the things we can work together on, knowing knowing that we're going to have, and you've cited some of these things where there already are differences. Well, and speaking of that, I mean, you know, I know that you have been very involved in climate legislation. What would you like to see that we're not seeing currently that you think would help alleviate some of these conflicts over single issues? Well, I think ultimately this country has to come back. Um, and deal with climate legislation in a big way. And the country actually has to make a commitment to major investments in our energy infrastructure so that we do make this transition. Um, you know, short term, we got to put the production tax credit back in place uh, that, that's so important for, for wind turbines, for one, right? But there are mm-hmm. all these other things we can do, as I say, around industrial energy efficiency. We can try to nitpick or to cherry pick these, these individual pieces. We'd be much better off with a clear energy policy to lower our carbon footprint and something that provided a revenue stream, in fact, that could help finance part of that transition. Is that where cap-and-trade comes in? Well, cap-and-trade was what we've tried. Uh, Other people have talked about a carbon tax. Um, uh, All I know is that in the end, it seems that as other countries around the world have thought about this and approach it, we need to find the way that says we need a serious long-term revenue stream that actually helps us make this transition because we have to modernize our industries, mm-hmm. right? We need to develop and deploy new technology. Um, and wishing and hoping isn't going to get it done. And we do know regulation of these things actually help investments get made uh, in the private sector. Uh, we need the, the public sector engagement as well uh, as, as a way of moving the country forward in a different direction. Well, you know, in talking about clean energy issues, um, I, I, I start to get a little bit uncomfortable uh, in my own conscience, and I have a confession to make. Not a lot of folks who've listened to me for the last four years on Go Green Radio know this, but my dad was a coal miner for 25 years, and I grew up in a union family. Um, 
And though I am a staunch and enthusiastic clean energy proponent, sometimes when I talk with my environmentalist friends about the ramifications of closing coal mines, some of them don't believe there's such a thing as clean coal, I think that they believe that if we just invest in retraining programs, then we're covered. If we can just take all those coal miners and retrain them to do something else, that's that solves the problem. But I know that's not true. I mean, just because if they were to close a coal mine in my hometown and all those jobs went away and, and they retooled the coal miners to do something else, but a plant to produce that something else didn't come into the town, it's not like we could have just picked up and moved, you know, sold the house, moved to a solar panel, you know, area where they were manufacturing that. There'd be nobody to sell the house to. You know, you can't just uproot families. How does AFL and CIO balance its stance on the need for clean energy with the needs of the workers and families in, for instance, coal communities like the one I grew up in? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, I think, and in, in, in the number of your listeners may not like this, but I actually think that given the status of coal, in essence, how much it contributes in terms of U.S. energy production, that there are real questions about you know, coal for the long term. And that carbon capture and sequestration and looking at that technology um, and, and trying to make it work and investing something in to see if that does work, it matters. Um, and the United Mine Workers actually have been way out in front of this for a long, long time, trying to get the right things done there to at least explore this technological uh, alternative to some of this, um, knowing knowing that these older coal plants that are up against regulation currently are threatened with closures. And I think there's a, a blind spot here about what happens to people. It really points out, not just in coal, but, you know, years ago I was one of the governor's leads on the Timber Task Force in Oregon uh, around the spotted owl and the, and the federal lands and the availability of, of trees, literally, uh, in that process. And I, I know this stuff firsthand. I grew up in Detroit. I've seen plant closures in the steel industry and the auto industry. I used to work in them. So this country does not have a safety net, unlike other countries, other like, unlike other advanced developing countries in Europe that have a set of safety nets that do things to retrain workers in a very large way and provide a set of benefits for the, those families and the communities that make them whole. We just don't have that, and we don't, certainly don't have it uh, in, in, in the mining industry. You lose your job. You got unemployment for a certain amount of weeks, and then you are SOL, as they say. Yep. And, and that's the way it is. And, and you know, what it doesn't, what it doesn't, people don't grasp is that in this industry and in the power production side of this industry, these are rural communities. Mm-hmm. And this is the industry. Um, and if you think people pick up and move, they don't. They didn't in Oregon and Washington. They love their homes. They love their communities. It's their family. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so if you want to talk about what is the right thing to do, we actually worked on it in climate legislation. We actually talked about what does a true transition program look like for an affected community, those workers and their families. Um, This country hasn't been ready, willing, and able to step up and do it. It was actually one of the things that we were trying to get in the climate bill um, that would provide a steady stream of funding to address that. But right now, you know, you don't have an alternative. And you can clearly understand why people who live in these communities are terrified of the Mm -hmm. prospects of having literally their lights shut off because they don't have any jobs and they can't pay the bills. Um, 
it's very, very real, and it's very understandable. And that's why we, again, come back to this connection of that just going for green jobs, disconnected from a discussion about how we create both good jobs in, in, the, in the new industries we're generating, but how we address the effects of climate legislation on, on people who may be adversely affected, whether it's in a, an industry that's affected by the regulation or by the effects of climate change itself, is mm-hmm. really a much broader uh, discussion about how we live as a country and how we treat our people. Well, it's so true. And, and you know, I have really not been privy to conversations. I hope they're going on, but I'm not sure that if we're going to close a coal plant, for instance, that, you know, before that happens, let's build a wind turbine manufacturing plant or something. Because, you know, like you said, People don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their hometown and their you know, grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts. But if if a coal mine is the premier employer in the community um, without bringing in a new employer who can utilize all those hardworking, uh, you know, skilled, dedicated workers and put them to work immediately in the same location – I don't know how fair and equitable that is, and we really have to think about it. No, you do. I mean, and actually, a part of what we were going for in the in the climate legislation around this was really a very a major community development program effort that put serious resources at play in helping communities address this. And the fact is, if you have better lead times, long lead times, you you have more capability of addressing these things than mm-hmm. short-term notices and, and closures that are going to happen in six months, right? right. I, I think that's, that's part of this, um, that time is not a luxury. Time is a need in all of this to that's get right. the job done right. That's right. That's the only way that smart public policy is going to is going to happen. And I'm not saying drag our feet, but I'm saying focus on these things with the same fervor that we do some of the other issues around climate. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tovanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tovanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today, our topic, if you're just joining us, is how to ensure that green jobs are good jobs. That's the big underpinning central theme of the show today. And we're joined by Bob Bow. He is a member of AFL-CIO, and he wears a lot of hats, um, but he's been truly intertwined and very integral in the uh, representation of labor in climate legislation and and quite a few other discussions around green jobs. But when the U.S. is investing, when we do have public dollars to invest in energy companies or energy technology, how do we ensure that the jobs that are created by those investments become American jobs? Um, with the Chinese wind turbine manufacturer who stood up yeah. and announced, we're going to create you know, 300 jobs in the United States and 3,000 jobs in China um, uh-huh. with, with public monies. Uh, that didn't happen in the end. Uh, but I, I think, you know, you actually put criteria in place when you put it out. Um, that's one of the ways you do that. You make it very clear that you're making the investment because you want to make it make sure that it is made in the United States. And you can talk about minimum job standards related to that investment, like, A, you know, how many jobs will you be creating, and what is the nature of that job? You know, we had suggested at one point, much like exists sort of in the construction side where you have Davis-Bacon laws that level the playing field to make sure you've got some sort of standard there based upon average uh, construction wages in a particular state, right? Um, right. They have those. We said you can do the same thing on manufacturing. You know, put in place a standard for your investments that say they should offer a, you know, a decent job with good benefits as part of that puzzle. As I said, other states, you know, in their economic development agencies look at some of these things about how they make their public investments for other purposes. Um, I, I used to have to do that when I was one of those people. Uh, we suggested in various forms of legislation that there should be a standard in there that the uh, firm should pay at least the average manufacturing wage. You should be able to look at the firms you're doing business with. Have they been a consistent violator of the safety and health laws of the country or the labor laws of the country? Um, you know, that that should be part of the criteria as well. What kind of an employer do we have? And will they, will they in fact abide by, uh, the safety and health laws and the job quality laws in the United States? I mean, these are things that you have as the, uh, procurer, uh, the right to request. Mm-hmm. And that's ways you can go about doing that. 
You know, just this week, um, I was tweeting about this. Uh, I generally tweet about, you know, a lot of different mainstream news items that have to do with energy or, or food production or water issues, you know, things that are environmental issues that are covered in, uh, things like Thomson Reuters, AP, a lot of mainstream media. And one of the things I was tweeting about was, um, that there were some steep, tariffs that were placed on Chinese solar panels this week. What was the AFL-CIO reaction to those tariffs? We cheered. <laughs> I mean, word. it's that simple. I mean, and it, it really comes back to this idea of we actually want a solar industry in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the irony of this, this is, this is what makes me angry, frankly. Um, you know, we did this before. This is deja vu to me. In 1980, 81, 82, I was on the board of the solar industry lobby in Oregon as an officer of the AFL-CIO. We had environmentals for full employment. We had this dialogue going 30 years ago, and we lost. And as technologies that we developed in this country, from wind turbines to solar technologies, and and here we are again um, on the cusp of climate change in, in in the world, and us making major investments in our economy to do this. It makes sense to make those investments and make certain they are here. And the flip side of this is, you know, the Chinese have actually targeted this sector, um, and they are in violation in terms of illegal subsidies, of currency manipulation, of workers that have no rights, um, and they've targeted the American market. And, you know, it makes no sense to stand still. I look at it from the perspective of we want these technologies. We want them here. We actually want to learn from them. I actually want solar engineers in this country thinking about the next generation, the next innovation, the next iteration, and things that we can do and make uh, for us to share with the rest of the world as well. So it was the right thing to do. The, the, the issue of the tariffs on the Chinese solar panels is one of a, of a dozen or more cases that are going on. We got it on tires. We have it on other clean energy technologies. We now have it on auto parts because of the behavior of the Chinese government. There is not a level playing field, and they're, they're targeting this market, and we need to do something about that. I want a solar industry, uh, a, a vibrant one that exists in this country. And we've actually succeeded, Jill, in some ways. You know, by the investments we made with the Recovery Act, right, we actually mm-hmm. have more turbine manufacturers in the United States. It makes a difference. Here's one of the things that I'm concerned about, though, because, you know, there are some raw materials that are necessary to manufacture solar panels and wind turbines and some other green technology. And that is where we start talking about rare earth minerals. It's not like the U.S. doesn't have them, but right now we don't we don't mine them. We don't uh, process them. We get a lot of our rare earth minerals from other countries. China is a big one. They're a huge exporter of rare earth materials. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that in order for us to have a robust manufacturing presence in the U.S. to manufacture things like solar panels, we need rare earth minerals. And, and how do we – I mean, are we going to end up in trade agreements where in order to get those rare earth materials – we're going to have to make other deals and accept other uh, products that are made by foreign labor in order to import those raw materials for manufacturing things like solar panels. Does AFL-CIO have a seat at the table when those kind of trade deals are being made? Not enough of one, and I don't think the American public has enough of a seat at those tables around that stuff. We are engaged with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but frankly, um, 
they're listening to major corporations way more than they're listening to the public around this stuff, and I think that is uh, is very very dangerous um, because we have found a real disconnect between the in- interest of uh, corporate interest and what is the national interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the rare earths piece, Jill, I just a, a couple points for your listeners. Um, rare earths is sort of a misnomer. Um, they're everywhere, <laughs> um, and and it you know, but they're they're like five percent of whatever you go mine around it. It's and you got to process it to get there. Um, we actually have a uh, one of the most productive mines in the world is in the United States. The irony is it was closed down for environmental reasons twenty five years ago. Yeah, it's here in uh, California. <laughs> it, it is in California. It's, a, it's actually about it, it has reopened. Um, and it is one of the most productive mines. It has rare earths at a 10% level. It doesn't have all the different, you know, there's like 17 or 20 rare earth elements. It has a lot of them. It doesn't have all of them. China controls about 90% of the rare earths in the world. And yep. they, their processing equipment is the stuff that used to be in California that they mm-hmm. bought from that company. Things are changing. The, the Chinese government's cutting off of those supplies to Japan. Yep. Um, uh, really raised some eyebrows around the world. People kind of whoa, um, you know, the world is different than it was 30 years ago. You need these rare earths in all kinds of technologies. It isn't just mm-hmm. green stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all kinds of things. And yeah, your cell so, phone, batteries. Ab- yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's part of modern technology, and you have to have it. So you will see the mine in California reopening. You, you, the Australians are going to do this. There are other places in the United States you can mine this, and you've got to do it in an environmentally safe way. There's no two ways around that, but we know how to do that. Um, I think, you know, the Chinese actions has actually opened the door towards the development of more rare earth resources, both domestically and internationally because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a big concern. Mm-hmm. Well, it's something we really need to be thinking about because, you know, you could have all of the manufacturing floors ready to make solar panels that you want, but if you don't have the ingredients, uh, you're not going to bake the cake there. So you, You're would... absolutely right. <laughs> now, because I really don't know the answer to this question, I want to ask it because I'm going to assume that other um, Go Green Radio listeners don't know this either. How is China's subsidization of its green technology companies different than when the, than when the U.S. invests in our own green tech companies and we have our Buy American procurement standards? Just so we're better educated, how are those two um, – how, how are they? How are they different? How is what China's doing different than what we do? Well, the biggest one is currency manipulation. Um, they have basically have for, for you know years and years pegged their currency to the American dollar and keeps it consistently undervalued. That creates a a huge difference in opportunity. And in fact, it's illegal in other countries other around the world are complaining about this as well. That is one way. Their subsidies take all kinds of forms from. Free land, the free energy to uh, you know facilities and equipment, um, and that has been the subject of, in fact, these trade cases that the ITC ruled on, and in fact, that's why the tariffs were were put in place uh, against them, that they are recognized as different than the normal course of action and what may be illegal actions versus illegal actions by other countries. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help but see the irony. I mean, I've done a lot of work in China, and I see what they're doing with, you know, 8% GDP growth year over year. You know, at some points it was higher than that, um, and now it's kind of settling in. But they've got cash on hand. They don't have government debt the way that we do. And there's all kinds of ways that they're using that GDP growth, not the least of which is 
lending money to the U.S. so we can invest it in other things. It's it's this really unbelievable conundrum that we've gotten ourselves into, um, and the way that we're so intertwined, and and also kind of dependent on their GDP growth for the loans that we're getting. It really is a difficult situation, not just for American labor, um, but for American you know, public dollars as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, I, I'm just wondering, you know, how we, we break that cycle, um, from a labor perspective. How do we break that cycle? Well, one of the ways you break the cycle is we start making more of our own stuff, um, and exporting it. I mean, that's part of this. I mean, part of the debt you're talking about is the fact that we run these massive trade deficits and have for over the decade. Uh, we, we're, we're in excess of three or four trillion dollars with china i mean it's it's unbelievable amounts of money um and you as a country you can't continue to do that and this really brings me back to a, a point we keep making over and over you know i don't care if it's germany japan or china you're talking about all of those countries actually have a strategy about having a manufacturing base in their economies and they do things to align their trade their tax their investment their technology policies to support that goal of creating jobs and income for manufacturing. And this is where, you know, looking at the energy economy and the, and, and green jobs fits right into this. We think that is one of the important things, uh, that is going to happen in the, that is happening in the 21st century. And that it really matters that your country focus and invest on that. And we think in so many ways this country has failed to have a strategy. I mean, our free trade folks just sort of are mindless about this. They go, oh, it's great. We can just get cheaper panels from China. It doesn't matter if we have a solar entry industry. It doesn't matter if we have a wind turbine industry. It doesn't matter if we have any industry at all. Uh, you, it's one of the reasons we're losing a middle class, that we have that kind of an attitude. And in terms of our own sense of who we are and our own national security, we should have these capabilities and capacities. So, it, you know, the idea that countries are playing I, I like to say other countries in the world, when they think about the stuff of playing soccer, uh, and we're playing football, um, <laughs> they, they're, you know, Japan and Germany have had very clear programs and ideas about the technologies around uh, solar, around wind turbines, and around other technologies that they want to develop and be really, really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, they run surpluses with China. We're running 300, 400, 500 billion dollar deficits. There's something really out of whack here, and if we are going to address climate and the country's going to make these investments, then let's make them smartly so that we modernize our industries and develop these technologies. Mm-hmm. And have a, a roadmap, a game plan, exactly. if you will, to make all of this part of a, a strategy where you know we've got kind of the hub that speaks to why we're doing this, and then spokes that come linearly off that hub to address each of these issues. It makes perfect sense. I don't know why we're not doing it. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, more on this important subject of ensuring that green jobs are good jobs. Don't go away, for it, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you'd like to engage in this conversation a little bit longer, even after we're done with the show, you can do so by follow me, following me on Twitter. I'm out there all the time. I kind of live on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Jill Buck, J-I-L-L-B-U-C-K. So give me a shout out any old time. You can also email me at gogreenradio at gmail.com. Let's keep the conversation going. This is important stuff. Well, we are joined today by Bob Bow, and he is with the AFL-CIO. This is labor. This is uh, workers, and we are talking about how to protect workers in the U.S. and ensure that as we emerge into this new green economy of a less carbon-intensive economy, that the jobs that are created are good jobs, good-paying family-sustaining wages, and that's what we're talking about. Now, Bob, I know that you've done some work with international labor organizations, and I'd love for you to talk about that. And this concept that you all share um, that's called a just transition, explain that to us, if you would. I'd be glad to, Jill. Well, yeah, we are part, the AFL-CIO, like I said, we're a coalition or confederation of unions in the United States, we're also part of a world trade union movement uh, that is gathered together in its own umbrella group called the International Trade Union Confederation. And we have been uh, active with them on this issue as long as we were working on the legislative side in the United States around climate. So we participate in the climate talks. In fact, as a body, we're the largest NGO per- uh, participating at the international climate talks. And uh, we've been leading U.S. labor delegations and coming together with our brothers and sisters from around the world to participate in the international climate talks and urge them to take action. One of the things we're promoting is a financial transaction tax domestically and internationally uh, to stop some of the abuses on Wall Street, but also to use those resources that are raised to uh, invest a portion of them in a climate agenda. 
in doing some of the things we've talked about, and frankly, one of the things that we promote and talk about in, in this is, is a just transition. And I think often that term is thought of uh, by folks in the environmental community, oh, well, we just got to take care of those poor workers that lost their job. And that's not a vision. That's just a reaction. We think it's much more. And by just transition, as we defined it internationally and as we've done up on the Hill, I've testified on this, is that we think that a just transition to a greener economy requires a real aggressive, sustained commitment of national resources to create and retain good jobs in this economy as we make this energy transition, and that there's four pieces to it, and they're very simple. We need to invest to modernize our industries. We need to develop and deploy new technology as a second step. The third is to train and educate workers they can take advantage of these technologies and help lead the fight for a greener, cleaner planet. And fourth, provide assistance and resources to communities and workers who are adversely affected by climate or by climate legislation, back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. It is an idea of you need to approach this comprehensively and broadly with what I had called earlier as an economic development environmental agenda for our country. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and it's funny, as you mentioned that, it made me think about all the various environmental social justice um, talks that I've heard and articles that I've read where, you know, we talk about the people who are, um, you know, breathing polluted air and the things that we need to do to create an environmentally just um, community for them so that they are healthy and they've been on the end, you know, the, the wrong end of the environmental impacts of some of the carbon intensive energy production. But it's not like the, the, the workers who are working in those industries are the enemy. They are just like every other American and they are just trying to feed their families. And so environmental social justice really needs to um, encapsulate that group of workers um, who, if we do clean up our air, if we do reduce our carbon emissions, that they're taken care of too. And I think that we could expand that environmental social justice umbrella uh, over a lot more people um, who are going to be impacted, not just from air pollution and not just from uh, smog and, and particulate matter, but also those who will have no livelihood if those technologies completely go away. Um, I, I agree with you, Jill. I think we all want a cleaner planet and good jobs in the end. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, AFL-CIO has done a lot, even in the absence of comprehensive climate legislation. And I read about some of these achievements in a speech that your president, Richard Trumka, gave at the UN Investor Summit in January of this year. Um, one of the things that, that I was so interested in was that he said $1.2 billion in workers' pension assets have been committed to infrastructure investment, and I had never heard that before. Tell us more about how workers' pension assets are being invested. Oh well, you know, there's a, there's, you know, uh, our unions have pension funds. I shouldn't say our unions. It's a more complicated discussion than that. But a number of our unions have jointly managed pension trusts. They call them Taft-Hartley trusts, and they've been actively engaged in making investments in the industry and economy that helps generate jobs uh, for their own members in the construction industry, for example. But in particular, we've actually worked with the Clinton Global Initiative uh, over the course of the last year. We actually made a commitment that we would help uh, put up $40 million in the, in the immediate around energy efficiency measures and work to raise a pool of monies to be invested in greater commercial energy efficiency projects in the country. 
And that has been done. We actually have, if uh, you go to the Clinton Global Initiative and, and look at what they've done, we've actually kept our promises and we've been engaging our pension funds. It's like, this is workers' money. How can it be invested in the right way? And we've worked very heavily with like CalPERS, the California Pension System, and a number of other, uh, you know, state public pension funds. Again, about how do you make these investments that both offer a decent return so that workers' pensions are protected, uh, but but also do good things for our economy and our environment. Um, and, and that's so basically an putting on, your money where your mouth is. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. We're engaged in a conversation with them around what are models of investing, what are the right financial models for investing in industrial energy efficiency, and trying to help that, trying to you know, make the linkages between uh, you know, providing return for people who want to see their pensions protected and safe and get a decent return. And they really would like to see them create jobs and, mm-hmm. and do something to help clean the environment uh, around our country. You know, it Bob, there are it does make sense, and there are several more questions I would love to ask you. We have reached the end of the show, but I can't thank you enough, not just for being with us here on Go Green Radio and illuminating some of these issues, but for the work that you do to ensure that uh, that these newly created green jobs are good jobs, and I'm glad that you're out there doing that. Folks, we're going to be here, same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.